You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that's me. We've had a busy couple days in media, so I've got two great guests on to talk about it. You're going to like this one. First, as you know, the Chris Licht era at CNN is over. It lasted a little more than a year. Puck's Dylan Byers wrote about Licht showing up at CNN, and Dylan broke the news that Lick was leaving this morning. So I had Dylan on to talk about the whole thing, including the now infamous Tim Alberta Atlantic article, uh, what led to David Zaslav changing his mind on Chris Licht. A couple weeks ago, Zaslav was defending Lick publicly. Something happened. Was it just the article? We talk about that. It's a meta conversation as well, because Dylan became part of the story at various points, including in that uh, Atlantic article. You will like this conversation. This week, Apple also announced maybe its most important new product since the iPhone. I think that's plausible. I don't know if it's true, but it's plausible. It's not immediately a media story because you can't actually consume media or anything else on this thing. In the very near future, you've got to wait until next year to get your hands on it. But my pal Lauren Good, she's a senior writer at Wired. She also hosts their Have a Nice Future and Gadget Lab podcast. Lauren's gotten her hands on it. She actually put this thing on her head and used it. So I want to talk to her about that experience and then try to figure out what a normal person is actually going to do with an Apple Vision Pro headset and what Apple thinks they might do with it and why Apple's even releasing this product or announcing this product so far in the future when it's so really kind of rough. I like both of these conversations. That's why you get to hear them. Okay, here's me and Puck's Dylan Byers. Dylan Byers has been diligently covering the Chris Licht era since it began, even before it began, really. And he became part of the Chris Licht story, which we're going to discuss. And then he broke the story that the Chris Licht era at CNN was over this morning. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm surprised you have the time to talk to me, because it's your full-time job is is CNN coverage. But let me start with this. You broke the news this morning that, that Licht was out. I think most of us in media land assumed he would be leaving at some point after the Tim Alberta Atlantic piece. But did you think it would be that quick where it's less than a week since publication? No, I didn't. And I, I, I didn't because the thinking inside Warner Brothers Discovery had changed and changed pretty rapidly. I, I think what happened here is very quick timeline. David Zaslav, head of Warner Brothers Discovery, realized months ago that uh, it was probably misguided to have Chris Licht, a, a longtime executive producer with no uh, experience running uh, the business of a global, you know, a global media organization. It was probably misguided to have him running the business while also trying to program the network. And so there was a search for a, a chief operating officer. That was really, I think, sort of an attempt to sort of install one of his own corporate officers in there, which he did uh, in the 24 hours leading up to the Atlantic piece. I think at that point, they believed that 
if they got someone in there and let Chris just roll up his sleeves and focus on the programming, that there might be more runway for him to succeed. Now, a lot was working against this. One, he had alienated staff in a, in a very big way, which was clear in my reporting, certainly clear in the Tim Alberta piece in The Atlantic. And then two, d- despite his reputation as a sort of wonderkind executive producer, had never, never actually succeeded in making good television at CNN. Whatever the case, then this Chris Lick piece drops. It, it is obviously a disaster for him. Even then, there was this idea, the way that they were talking, um, David Zaslav, Chris Licht, et cetera, the way they were thinking about it was, he's, we're, we're going to aim for a reset. He's going to go back down to the newsroom floor where he should have always been, and we're, we're going to try and find a way to make this work. But more than the Tim Alberta piece itself, it was the effect that that had. It was the way it brought... All of these people who had been speaking anonymously, from high-level anchors down to rank-and-file staff, brought them out of the woodwork. They voiced their concerns and their grievances to Warner Brothers Discovery, and it became clear that the morale had been so destroyed and that the feelings about Chris Lick's leadership were so strong, and certainly that the, that the press was terrible. I mean, like I can't think of a news organization in the last week that hasn't written a pretty critical piece about Chris Licht in his tenure. That it that it became wholly untenable to keep him in that spot, and so I think the thinking changed over the weekend, and then finally they decided to put this in place. I uh, just to break the fourth wall for a bit. I will concede I, I reached out very very early on Wednesday morning to try and confirm this with them, and I think that might have set in motion the gears by which they informed Chris like he was gonna gonna be losing his job, and then they announced that formally at the nine a.m. meeting. So you were you were going to write a piece that said Chris Licht is on its way out. You reached out to them, said I'm going to write this, and you believe that that call may have said, "All right, let's just go ahead and do it now." If Dylan's going to write about it anyway, I don't know. They may have always been planning on uh-huh. Wednesday. What I had always been told is that it was going to. What I had been told um, on Tuesday is that it was going to be this week. So it, maybe it was always going to be Wednesday. Maybe okay. maybe it, it, they it. It accelerated things a little bit. Whatever the case, it was clear to me by Tuesday night that he was going to be out this week. So you're telling the Alberta piece, pick your metaphor, is the the straw that broke the camel's back or the dam breaking or or yes. a, two-ton, a two-ton brick that broke a camel's back. You know, when, when David Levy, the COO, was announced the, the day before, I asked a, a smart CNN person, what, what's going on here? They announced the COO. That's weird. He's going to take on almost all the responsibilities uh, that Chris Licht has, except for programming. That's weird. They said, oh, they're trying to get a hold of the Tim Alberta piece, which is coming out tomorrow. It's going to be a nuclear bomb. Was David Zaslav on down at, at, at Warner Brothers? Did they understand what was coming with this Alberta piece? My sense is that they knew it was not going to be good. And that is not what they had initially hoped for, certainly not what Chris Licht had initially hoped for. You have to remember, this piece, Tim Alberta started working on this piece almost a year ago. And at the time, I think the sense was Chris Licht felt like his story was not being told the right way. He didn't like some of the critical coverage, uh, which, as the Alberta piece makes clear, he felt uh, was being fueled by the pre- by the Jeff Zucker, you know, expats. And he thought if he invited a magazine journalist in, he did a similar thing with with James Stewart at the at the New York Times, that someone would tell the story that cast him as a sort of hero working to save journalism in a time of partisanship and you know the, the sort of decline of linear media, whatever whatever it might have been. 
he thought he was going to get a sympathetic voice. I think what happened here is that the, the Tim Alberta kept work uh, to his credit, kept working the story and working the story. And as the climate around Chris Lick became more obvious, as the morale continued to go down and the ratings continued to go down, and certainly as Chris Lick made, I think, a lot of unforced errors in terms of the access that he provided to Tim Alberta, I think Alberta saw that there was another more compelling story to tell here, and that was the story that he decided Which is to tell. the actual story. I, I keep getting yes. inbound calls from various PR people saying, how could this happen? Who made this happen? And my answer is like, Chris Lick made this happen. Even if Correct. this was a PR person's brainchild, you don't convince the CEO of a company to off to make that access available unless they think it's a good idea. That aside, less than a month ago, following the CNN town hall, David Zaslav does an investor conference with Moffat Nathanson, says things are going great. Well, they're, they're, Chris Licht is doing a good job. He's doing a turnaround. He's got Republicans watching. His Republicans coming on TV. Did he believe all of that, or had, had the tide already turned in his mind? I certainly believe David Zaslav is smart enough to to have been aware that things were not going according. In fact, I know he he was aware that that things were not. It was not an ideal situation. But I think in in Zaslav, you have someone who has a great deal of conviction in his own beliefs, a sense that even if everyone else can't see what he's doing, you know, you take this to to his own actions with the parent company, like if the market can't see it or the press can't see it, that he's clear eyed about the the long term game plan. And I think he's also someone who has a lot of conviction in his ability to choose the right people. And so I think that there was a a sense for a long time. I think there was a lot of a lot of faith and conviction that Chris just needed more time. Look, the, these guys are all very skilled and trained public speakers in terms of how they deal with the press and investors and everything like that. So at what point was David Zaslav saying that because he wanted to telegraph confidence? And, and at what point did he stop believing it? And, and where do those things align? I don't exactly know. I think what I what I do know is that it was clear to him that Chris Licht was struggling, certainly before the Tim Alberta piece, even before the town hall. But I think the Trump town hall, the Tim Alberta piece made it. And then, you know, the protests again from from staff on the inside, both sort of quietly and then publicly in the case of a Christian Amanpour, uh, I think that made it just impossible for, for him to to ignore. You said Zaslav's got convictions, and then also he's he's a savvy operator, and he's he's certainly been running a big company for a long time, speaking in public. He has not run a company of this profile, being Warner Brothers, right? Warner Brothers has lots of assets that people care a lot about. You know, when they take down an HBO show, he gets a lot of grief. He's now being uh, uh, booed at commencement speeches, and then he's managing CNN, and anyone who's ever been around a, a journalistic organization knows that those people talk a lot, they complain a lot, they have a lot of sympathetic ears. Do you think he he did not fully realize what he was managing when he took this thing over in terms of how to communicate his ideas and 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 how much leeway he'd been given by by media? Yeah, I I do think that there's a little bit of I think one thing that Zaslav and, and Chris Licht had in common is a sense of pride and, and sort of utter self-assuredness, uh, you know, and in in Zaslav, for instance, <laughs> like when they took over the company, uh, when the mer- merger happened, Warner Media Discovery, 
there was this thing where it's like, okay, you know, what, what do you, what do you know about running a 24 hour multi-platform global news network? And they kept talking about how they had this great news organization in Poland. Well, okay. These are obviously, these are obviously two very different things. And, and, you know, I, I reported at one point that of a conversation between David Zaslav and Brian Roberts at Comcast, where they sort of both bemoaned how their respective cable networks accounted for a small fraction, four, five, six percent of the bit their mm-hmm. businesses, but ninety percent of their headaches. And I think that I don't think that they had full awareness that running CNN was not going to be like running another cable network. That. An organization staffed with journalists who take a lot of pride in what they do, who push back against authority, who love to gossip. And I also don't know if they fully understood, the the despite the fact that not that many people watch cable news anymore, despite the fact that these businesses are in decline, that they still occupy a very big place in the culture and certainly in the media culture. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't know if they anticipated just how big those headaches were going to become when there was a leader in place who who was in over his head and not up to the job um, to which he was assigned. What changes now? Does, does Zaslav still believe that his idea, which happens to also be the same idea that uh, his investor and, and mentor John Malone has, that, that, that you want to move CNN to the middle, away from its supposedly slide to the liberal anti-Trump left, was the right idea and Licht was the wrong guy to do it? Or does he go, well, maybe I should reconsider the whole thing. Maybe there's a whole different strategy we need to take here. I, I believe that they still have conviction in that mission. I think what's hard here, again, you know, this is all happening in, in this moment in time, the, the, you know, the sort of Trump era, when how you program from the center, how you you promise to sort of be a network of absolute truth at a time when, you know, there's so many people out there who sort of disregard the truth and have other networks they go to where they don't need to hear the truth, it, it is a very hard challenge. I think what I would say is, yes, they believe it should be a centrist network. Yes, they believe that it should entertain perspectives from all um, all, all sides of the political spectrum. I think one mistake David Zaslav makes when he talks publicly about this is he says we should have people on from both sides. I think it would be smarter to say we should have people on from all sides. Um, but I, I think one of the faults here was coming in and making these big claims about being this force for saving democracy and saving journalism, acting as though the previous administration wasn't trying to do that. And all the journalists who work their asses off every day at CNN weren't trying to do that for the last 10 years, because I think many of them were. And then fundamentally, I think your North Star needs to be not not this you know, uh, idealistic vision of, of, of absolute truth. Your North Star needs to be making good television. You know, for all of Chris Lick's inabilities to be a CEO and run a business and all of that, he also failed to do the thing that he was ostensibly good at, which was to make good television. And and I think at the end of the day, whether you are managing this business through the decline of linear or whether you're going to articulate some bold vision for a post-linear future and digital and streaming, so long as you have a television network, you have to make compelling television that people want to watch. And I think one of the true sins here is that Chris Licht, for all of his reported successes at Morning Joe and CBS This Morning and and the Colbert, you know, Colbert, never, never figured out how to do that at CNN. 
What is the point of CNN within Warner Brothers Discovery now? You mentioned that it generates enormous headaches. You mentioned that it's there's secular decline for, for cable news, with cable TV in general. Does Warner Brothers, and, and there's always the idea that someone is going to buy CNN, they'll spin it out. What What is the real world discussion within Warner Brothers Discovery about? Is this an asset we need to have? Is it an asset we have to have as part of the bundle? Um, or could they just rid themselves of a headache and, and spin it out immediately or soon? You know, I've, I've always, I have long wondered why you don't sell it. You look at the balance sheet, you look at the debt that they have. Still, despite all the damage that CNN has endured in, in the Trump era and the changes in ownership and licked, you know, whatever, it is still a business that I think could, you know, it could sell for seven or eight or nine billion dollars. And so I don't, some people would argue it's less, but it's it's got a brand value, I think, still globally that is synonymous with Coca-Cola. And if you could find a, a, a suitor for that, you could wipe off a lot of the debt. You could rid yourself of a lot of these headaches. The conversation, to the best of my knowledge, is that they don't want to do that at this time. And I think they're also thinking down the road to that not-so-far-off day when they pursue a bigger deal for the entire company, right? Whether that's a tie-up with with NBC Universal or someone else. And, and I think they're thinking about CNN having a place in that portfolio. But mm-hmm. I don't... You know, again, one one thing that's hard about dealing with these guys is for a long time they were telling me that they had utter religion and conviction in Chris Licht, and then all of a sudden they, they didn't. So, yep. no, and, so and, things and, can change. And the people who used to own the company that used to be a Time Warner were AT&T, and they loved it until they didn't, which turned out yes, to be pretty exactly. quick. I don't know how someone who's not in – it seems like the most – a scenario you often hear people talk about is, oh, a private equity company could buy CNN and they throw off a lot of cash and that's the kind of thing that appeals to private equity. I don't know how you run that business outside of a bundle of other cable networks, but maybe we can talk about the next time we have you on. Before we let you go, I want to have a meta conversation with you about being part of the story. We in media often joke relatively good-naturedly about your minute-to-minute obsessive coverage of CNN over at Puck. Uh, I think you even admitted that maybe you're a little overly obsessive about it, but you certainly had an audience. Zaslav's reading it. Lick's reading it. Um, in Alberta's piece, Lick is ignoring his own employees at a Christmas party, and he's scrolling through one of your pieces. What is it like to be that deep in the thing where you absolutely know that the next thing you type is going to be read by the person you're writing about. Um, and then that person, I mean, what, what is what is the feedback you're getting from, I'm not going to ask you about specific feedback from Lichter or Zaslav, but you are getting feedback from them. What is it like to be sort of in that tight loop where you're writing about them almost all the time, they're reading everything you write on and on and on? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think jur- journalists like to say, you know, the journalists should never be part of this story. And I, I don't, I'm clear-eyed about this. I recognize that in a way I am a very small part of this story, but there's a lot more at stake. And um, no one's ever asked me, I'm certainly aware that I've covered a lot. Um, Why have I covered it a lot? I think one reason is very simple, which is um, the sort of truest instinct of a journalist, which is I think it's just a very good story with a lot of drama and palace intrigue. Uh, and I think it's a story where I feel like I'm very well sourced up. So I, I don't I don't deny that. And I don't deny that, again, despite the fact that only a few hundred thousand people are watching this channel, that a lot of people seem to be very interested in the drama. At the same time, um, 
and I really do mean this, I, I, I'm not sure I would be devoting this much attention to the story if I didn't think that CNN occupied a very singular space in American politics and American culture. And I say that, re again, recognizing how small the audience has become, but I do think this question in these hyper-polarized times when there's so many different platforms and media organizations you go to, this question of this authoritative voice that is at least grasping for the truth, aiming to be an authoritative voice um, at a both national and global scale, and what is at stake if we don't have an organization like that, um, or if that organization is suffering, actually make the, the stakes to me here feel a great deal higher than they would if I was just talking about, you know, a broadcast network that might not exist. Yeah, it'd be in, weird in, if you were obsessively covering years. something that you didn't think was important, right? There are yes. lots of companies that that make a lot more money than CNN and the, that employ many more people. Um, but it obviously has has some kind of import. I am curious, though, about because you are writing in some behind a paywall. Um, so a lot of people that are reading you work at the company you're covering. Um, yeah. And I'm just curious about that that loop of you write something, presumably immediately it generates responses, you write about that. Um, and in one ways, that's really virtuous, right? You, 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 one story begets more stories. I, I do wonder about how you sort of try to step back and provide perspective to people who aren't living and breathing this day to day to make this to make sure that people who aren't directly in the loop understand why it's important to to read what you're writing. Sure. Well, I so I do just in terms of the stepping back, I do think there is that that higher thing that is at stake. And I also think there's just a larger story being told. In many ways, what, what CNN is going through is a microcosm of the larger questions about the news industry, about the linear television business, about the media business at large. And I think that in addition to the fact that that a lot of these people are sort of household names, or maybe if you've been following along in the coverage, we've made some of them household names that that works in terms of like my that feedback loop and being part of the story you know I, I would like to think that the you know the best when 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 a political reporter who's inside the white house publishes something that that is not only an account of what is happening in the white house but that is also influences the story and the and and i, I and the same is true i think in sports journalism on capitol hill in in any business journalism and i think that I don't think we should ignore that. I, 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 I think it's weird for the media to pretend like it is just providing a record and that that record isn't in itself performative and doesn't have influence on the story itself. Do you think you influence Chris Lick's tenure at CNN? Yeah, I do. But I also think he allowed that to happen by virtue of his own insecurities and, you know, this anecdote about him being going to this holiday party where ostensibly the leader, the CEO and chairman would spend his time addressing staff. Uh, certainly, I think that's what a Bob Iger would do or a, or a Brian Roberts or a Reed Hastings or whoever. And he's sitting there sort of reading the, the critical coverage of him. Is that my fault or is that his fault? You know, is it is it my fault or is it his fault that... Um, some of this coverage got so far in his head that he became distracted by it. You know, I don't claim that I'm fully just standing on the sidelines, but I do think that 
Look, I, I'm a reporter. He's the chief executive of a, of a major global media company. So, you know, I, I would I would say that the degree to which I influence the story has as much to do with him as it does with me. Will this story be as fun for you to cover the next year? A new leader? Oh, absolutely. I I don't think we're at a... I, this is not... As someone, as someone at CNN told me, this is not the uh, this the series finale. This is the season finale. There are still a lot of questions. The same David Zaslav is still controlling this company. He still has this mission. We're heading into an election cycle. There, there, there's going to be a search for a new CEO. The stakes remain high. And uh, no, this is not done by any stretch. I covered CNN uh, when when Jeff Zucker was there. I covered his his ouster and his fall and the interregnum. And then I covered the Chris Licht era. And and I will cover the next era. Uh, as intensely as I always have. We will have you back sometime in the next era. Thanks, Dylan Byers. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Dylan, who's had a crazy day, crazy week, really. Delighted he could spend a few minutes talking to us about that. In a minute, we're going to hear from Lauren Good from Wired about Apple's new Vision Pro headset, or as I like to call it, Apple's new goggles. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I'm here with Wired reporter and my good friend, Lauren Good. Hi, Lauren. Was that a pun on my name? No, it's terrible. I can do better puns than that, I would <laughs> hope. It's nice to see you. I look forward to seeing it's you in real life. Great to see you, Peter. Yeah, and in real life is better, isn't it? Yes, we'll discuss that. So the reason I've asked you to chat with me briefly is because you're one of, what, a couple dozen, a hundred people who don't work for Apple who've gotten to put on, what are we calling this, the Vision Pro? I call it the goggles. It's the Vision Pro, but I the think Vision it's Pro. okay to colloquially call it the goggles. That's what everyone is referring to it as. Okay, I'm calling it the goggles. So you went to Cupertino for the big Apple rollout. You have gone to many Apple rollouts. In the old days, this used to be a live presentation from Steve Jobs or Tim Cook mm -hmm. on a stage. Instead, you guys gathered and watched a video of Tim Cook presenting on a stage. But then the reason you were there was you got to actually try these things on afterwards. So I've seen pictures of it. I've seen a video of what it's supposed to be like, but you've put it on. What's it like when you have one of these goggles strapped to your head? Well, first, it's probably worth noting that there is a process to getting it on your head and that when this eventually becomes available, if people want to buy it, they're probably going to have to go to an Apple store to go through this process. Which one is, does not simply put a pair of goggles on one's head. No, it's got to be calibrated to you. So I, I had my face scanned with a face ID like app an Apple employee stood in front of me and scanned my face Then they scanned my ears because they're mapping spatial audio. And then I had a, an Apple-employed optometrist uh, measure my prescriptive lenses to get a sense of how I see. And then I went and sat on a couch for a little bit, and then I was invited into a private room, and there was a Vision Pro headset waiting for me that had been calibrated to my eyes and my face and my ears. Okay, so there's a lot of a lot of preamble, and, and, and we can even talk about the fact that if you are a glasses wearer, which you are, you're gonna have to get special lenses for this thing. 
But you put the thing on your head, Mm -hmm. you've used lots of other VR goggles. I think a lot of people at this point have tried some version of a VR or AR goggle. What is this experience like? So first there's the battery pack. You either have to put that in your pocket or put it on the couch next to you or something. Super cool. Super cool. And then I expected that the headset would feel light because the battery has been offloaded, but it actually feels rather hefty. And on, when on your head, the thing on your feels head. bunky. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, and, you know, there's like soft foam cushioning around the frame of it. So it's, it's resting on your nose. It's not like hard plastic or aluminum resting on your nose. It feels soft and kind of frames your face, but you are fully enveloped in this thing. And there are two soft straps. One goes behind the head, one goes on the top of the head. So you adjust it and then you're like, you're fully in it. And one of the things that Apple has been saying is that you can still see the real world, you know, in a sense, making it sound like it's transparent. I think that this is a little bit of mismarketing around it because what's actually happening is there are all these cameras on the headset that are showing you a video feed of the room around you. So, so it's, you're you know, looking, it's known as pass through. Right. right. So it's, instead of they're not they're not transparent glasses. They're right. you're lo- actually looking at a screen that is showing you a video of what it would look like if you were looking through glasses. Exactly. You are looking at two 4K displays with your eyes. It's been calibrated, so it doesn't look like you're looking at two. It looks like you're looking at one image of things. Mm -hmm. But you're looking at a video of the room around you. And so that does allow you some autonomy. Like you can see your hands. The headset will also scan your hands and you can see like where the coffee table is. You don't bang your knees into it and the plants in the corner of the room and everything. And there, there are people sitting around you. You can see them too. But it's not as though you're really seeing the real world. And so what are you seeing then besides the real world? Because you're not paying $3,500 plus to just look at your your knees. Right. That probably sounds compelling for some people, but I imagine a small portion of the population. So what then happens is you go to this home screen, and that's where you see the apple apps, right? You see the Apple native apps like photos and messages and everything mm-hmm. and Safari. And those are cast in front of you. So... I'm trying not to get too nerdy here, but basically it's a little bit of a misnomer to also call this AR. It's really spatial computing because you're doing the same things that you would do on a computer or on your phone, but you're doing it like in space floating in front of you. When you talk about what AR is and you talk about what Mm -hmm. companies like Magic Leap and Snap and, and others have done, they're using something that's known, it's called waveguide technology. It basically, there's a waveguide engine in the corner of the glasses, and it projects this imagery, this you know, out into the distance, refracts off something, and reflects, yeah. and then reflects right back into your eyeballs. This is not what's happening. You are looking at a video of the room around you, and then there are Apple apps floating in space in front of you. Okay, but I'm again, I'm not paying. At least I'm not paying thirty five hundred dollars plus to use the apps that are on my iPhone. Maybe some people would like to do so. What 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 is you know normally when you try on a pair of VR or AR goggles, they show you something really cool. In fact, it always involves a dinosaur. I guess in Apple uh, this time around, they did another dinosaur as well. Like I've still got an old like five year old Oculus headset that has a really cool video where you're sitting and a dinosaur stands over you and you, and you think it's going to crash down onto your face. What is the cool stuff that this is supposed to allow you that that Apple is showing you that you can do today? Right. I would say there are three things that really stood out to me about this headset. The first is gesture control. I think based on my very brief demo that Apple has nailed this in a way that others haven't quite done before. So explain Um, what that is. 
so there's so I mean there's so much compute power in this thing and there's so many cameras that like it, the camera sees what you're doing with your hands and allows you to use your hands without any kind of dorky hand controllers to gesture through apps and to select things. Yeah, I want to pause on that for a second because they they didn't really spend a ton of time talking about that. I think they maybe assume that people either people don't care or get it or whatever. But like again, if you've tried on most old VR headsets, you hold these sort of two joysticky things in your hand mm-hmm. and move them around, and that's how your fake hands are supposed to look. But here they get rid of that, and in theory, you can like snap your fingers or click them, and and the the glasses, the goggles will see what you're doing and then react. Yeah, it's a combination of eye tracking that's happening inside the device, looking at your eyes, and then the cameras pointing externally at your hands. So I would gaze at the Apple Photos app in front of me, and the computer, let's just call it the computer on my face, knew that I was looking at photos. It kind of emphasized that app a little bit. And then just doing a little click of my fingers, it would open the photos app. And then I would just be able to use my fingers to pull through the photos, scroll through them, expand them, look at them in panoramic mode. So this and is I sort could of do that Tom, with like all of the apps that were and that's sort of that Tom Cruise and Minority Report idea, right? You yeah, move your hands yeah. around and you can interact with stuff in front of you. Right. And other companies have tried this. Like you might remember Google tried this on phones for a while and, and they were you know working on this kind of stuff in their R&D lab. And then eventually they got rid of it because it turned out that it wasn't super intuitive to just wave your hand over your phone and control it. People actually wanted to tap and swipe. But when you have a face computer on and tapping and swiping actually may be less intuitive, this is like by tapping and swiping, I mean tapping on a physical device. This is like you're just kind of tapping and swiping through the air and the computer knows that's what you're trying to do. The second thing that was interesting is the ability to dim. Sometimes this happens automatically in the headset, and then you can control it manually using a little dial on the right side of your face, but to dim the room around you to make it either more immersive or less immersive. So that video feed that you could see of the living room and the coffee table and everything around you, if you were looking at something or watching a 3D video and you were like, you know what, I just really want to be in it. I don't need to Mm -hmm. see the things around me. You would dim it so that you did become more fully enveloped, closer to like the meta quest experience, right? Where you're fully in VR. Um, That was kind of interesting because I think it means for app developers, if they're building an app, they can sort of tune it to say like, this is AR or this is VR, this is something in between. And then the third thing I would say is that when I did experience something that felt, you know, it's not exactly volumetric, but like, let's call it stereoscopic, like. 3D, good old fashioned 3D. When I did watch the John Favreau directed dinosaur clip, where I watched a clip of um, Avatar 2 in 3D, uh-huh. um, that did feel like really compelling. It felt it felt pretty cool. It felt to me like entertainment more so than like like you, know, you were getting a cool 3D viewing experience. Exactly, and it like was. It felt very there. cinematic. So this this conversation that we're having kind of reflects my frustration slash question about all this, at least at least the initial descriptions, both from Apple and, and, and the people who've gone and tried these things out. It's like if I showed someone a TV for the first time and I said, what's the experience like? And you started saying, well, there's a knob and you can change channels and there's <laughs> another knob and you can make the volume lower or higher. And what I think a normal person would say is, this allows you to see moving pictures and sound in your home. And that's wild. You've never been able to see that before. So what I'm getting at is, is there a version of that with the Apple virtual, what are we calling it? The pro? It's the vision pro. Vision, it's got to get a better name. The goggles. What is the thing with the goggles? What's the holy shit? This is the future moment 
Or is there one? I still don't think this has a killer app. Not yet. Maybe it will by the time it launches next year. But I think that mixed reality headsets have been in search for a killer app for years, and I don't think we have landed on one yet. And I think what we've seen happen with other companies is they've gone towards very specific verticals when they haven't been able to sell their devices to the mass market. So the way that Magic Leap, for example, is now almost wholly focused on the enterprise market. Well, Mm -hmm. that and talking about how many patents they hold. Or the way that Snap really kind of appeals to the Coachella crowd. And when they show off their um, their Snap AR glasses, which are only available to developers, it's very artsy. It's very cool and hip. But they actually do quite a good job with AR. Um, it's very hard to market these things to tons and tons of consumers. And I think what surprised me about Apple's messaging, it felt quite muddled the other day because they really seemed to try to appeal to everyone and everything. You know, they right. showed it's work apps and device game apps and right. it's Apple apps and it's spreadsheets and it's design. And it's, I mean, that signaled to me that they still don't know what the killer app is for this thing. So you, like you've been saying, you have tried basically every headset known to man. I'm lucky guessing, me. lucky you, I'm guessing yeah. that you would say by those standards, this is the most advanced piece of that tech we've seen so far. That's certainly sort of what the Apple fans are saying. Is that a fair assessment? I think that Apple has done a really good job nailing certain elements of what it's like to wear a face computer. And one of those things is gesture control. And another one is, like I said, the ability to sort of flow in and out of a virtual environment. So we're talking around kind of in circles, like Apple hasn't been clear about what you should do with this. You're not quite sure what you should do with this. There's no killer app. Why has Apple come out in June and said, here's this thing? If you sort of read between the lines, it's basically sort of almost a concept uh, device. Like when you see, like, a, you go to Detroit for the auto show and they show you future cars. It's not that. It's it's going to be a real thing. You can get it early next year. But what is the point of coming out in June and saying, look at this amazing tech that really isn't quite fully there yet? What is What do you think the point of that is? Well, we have to assume that they're already working on the next version, right? So there's that too. Apple is, I think, you know, almost more than a computer company, an operations mm-hmm. company. This has been in the works for many years. Almost certainly the next one is is currently in the works. So um, they're on a time frame. This was the time they were going to release it. I think it's telling that they showed it off at their developers conference. This is a software conference. This is not the big hardware event that they typically have every September when they show off the iPhone. Uh, I think that they wanted to introduce this more as a platform than a product. And the the point is to get app developers thinking about it and how they can make stuff for it. And so I think that's part of the plan too. I mean, these kinds of projects for tech companies are no small feat. They're, they cost billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. It's still a relatively unproven market. I mean, maybe there's some element of it where they felt that they needed to be, they needed to get in there. They needed to start being competitive with the metas and Microsofts yeah, of the it's, world. Yeah, it's still pretty confusing. And, and again, I not agree. Just, be, just because Apple did something in the past doesn't mean they have to do it this way in the future. But when Steve Jobs showed off the iPhone, one, you could buy it not immediately, but pretty close to, to immediately. And two, he said, it can make phone calls. It can browse the web. Here's the New York Times on a web browser. Here's what that looks like. So you could start sort of seeing and imagining what that'd be like immediately. Same thing with the iPad. They had given the iPad to some developers in advance so they could say, here's a cool game that you can play with on the iPad or here's a, again the New York Times or whatever it was. 
and in this case, by the way, I, I, I this is I, I'm just slow, so it took me like a day to realize like they're not even pretending this is a thing that people are going to buy for Christmas, right? They're saying this is something that's coming out in January, so they're not even positioning this as like a mass market consumer device in the near future. So what did you ask them? When is this like a regular person thing? When is this something that a regular person interacts with, buys, et cetera? Is that two years, five years? Um, well, Apple declined to go on the record. Uh-huh. And so there but were- But what did a person close to Apple say? A person close to Apple, a bird said, um, they didn't really give a timeline for that. Uh-huh. And it's interesting to me that you mentioned the iPad. I mean, you mentioned all the Apple products, but the iPad in particular to me strikes me as something that is- most similar to this because, and I wrote this in my Wired story, Apple's modern successes have been often based around technology that disappears. The iPod actually took like an entire world's worth of music and shrunk it Mm -hmm. into a tiny device that fit into your pocket. Um, The iPhone is pretty much just, it's an appendage to all of us now. Like we take it into the bathroom with us. AirPods disappear into your ears. The Apple Watch replaced a main watch for a lot of people. We wear it on our wrists all the time. This is something that is so intrusive and so different. I mean, even the technical limitations right now, I personally don't think the battery life is a big deal, but you know, there is a technical limitation around that, around two hours of battery life. I think in that way, it is more going to mirror the iPad in people's lives, if it does take off, um, in that it's a thing that mostly sits at home and you, maybe you have a free evening and you sit there and you put it on for a little while and you watch some content, you browse some photos and you do some by, messaging. By, by yourself. Right? By by, yeah, by yourself. You're not. You're not. It's not a shared experience. Yeah, we did talk about this. This that they they because they address this right. Like we know that it's weird to sit around other people wearing goggles on your head. So we have this thing where people can see your face while you're wearing it. They're not actually looking at your face. They're looking at a video of your face. Um, they showed that off in the video where you know mom's sitting at home browsing some designer. Uh, a furniture website and her daughter comes in and talks to her and to me it looks like black mirror but they think that's cool how did that experience work for you well right i think i think we're talking about similar but different things in the sense that i'm thinking about social interactions within the device mm-hmm. you know one of the things that my nerdy friends and i have done on occasion is put on our meta quests we live in, di- <laughs> we live in different cities one was in seattle the other was in new yeah. york and we would play beat saber and then we would <laughs> we would gossip you know as we were playing beat saber yeah. and our little disembodied you know floating avatars in, in the metaverse um, i mean look i and- play i play Fortnite with other grown men so sure. I get, I get the idea of, you, of, of using devices that are solo experiences but become social when you connect on the internet. I get that. Totally, totally. For what it's worth, we also lost interest in that very quickly and haven't done it in probably about a year. But uh, but yeah, there's that. And it's it's very unclear whether or not Apple, I mean, Apple is not exactly known for creating super social experiences. Um, iMessage is probably its best stab at that and FaceTime. So, uh, so there were like little glimpses of that, of how it might be social. But I think what you're talking about is then, okay, so you put this thing on your face and this is how it's different from an iPad. You are blocked off from the world. So how do you socialize with the people around you? And um, this is what what I mentioned earlier about kind of the, I'm going to sound like, you know, marketing speak, the intelligent dimming, if you will. When someone <laughs> does come into your eyeline when you're wearing the headset, even if you're fully immersed in something, the headset knows to change the opacity of what you're looking at. And then the per- you can see the person. But still, 
it's all a little bit dystopian. I mean, it's all like that. Th- what really got me in the uh, the presentation video was the moment when the woman who's walking around her house decides to go to the fridge and get a Pellegrino or something. And she's like walking around the house with the headset on. And because it's you can see through it, you know, to some extent, or there's a video mm-hmm. feed, you can st- you can open the fridge and get the Pellegrino. And I'm thinking, I mean, that for me would just be the moment where I would take the thing off. I want to be most generous to this idea for argument's sake and also because I half believe it. I walk around all day at home outside with my iPhone in my pocket or in front of my face. And your AirPods in your AirPods on Uh and my Apple Watch dinging me Mm -hmm. and I can easily pass a full day without talking to anyone around me. I don't like that idea, but I often do it. So, and if we would have said that, in 2005 that would have seemed kind of bonkers are we right. going to look Spike at the Jones skepti- made an entire movie about it right are we going to look at that skepticism that you and i have now about people with goggles strapped to their face and go that seems really weird are we going to look at that skepticism five ten years from now and go god you guys were luddites you were so old you did not understand the future <laughs> well I personally think this is why the tech press is being sort of nice about this. Everyone's so afraid of being wrong. Everyone's so afraid of calling it and then being like, well, you know, I was the Luddites. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember for a while, you know, I didn't even like touchscreen typing. It took me a really long time as a tech reporter who's trying all the newest things. You're I still clinging to like, your BlackBerry. Yes, I want those tactile buttons, right? And then eventually I got on board. Uh, Change is hard. Change is really hard for people. And there's a lot of like other external change out there that we can't control right now. And it's a really scary world to live in sometimes. And so now you're saying, you know what, that iPhone that you are so emotionally attached to, we're going to have you put that down sometimes and just put a face computer on. Like it's a really hard thing to convince people to do. I still think even if this becomes another uh, modestly successful product in Apple's product line, and they make multiple versions, and at some point maybe there's you know they're selling several million of them, I still think it's going to have a, it's a specific use case. It's not an all the time thing, and I think that is because it goes on one of the most sensitive and personal areas of the body. It is something that covers your sensory organs. You're talking about not only blocking your ears like you do when you wear your AirPods all day long, or looking at an accessory on your wrist, which is maybe a less crucial part of your body, but you're talking about like covering the things that make you have a lived experience and saying the world in here is better, at least temporarily, than the world out there. Or this is somehow better than sitting in front of a large flat screen TV with your friends and family and watching that thing. Um, And I just, I think that's a harder sell, frankly. Yeah, as it should be. Lauren Good from Wired, you rock. I think that we should find a way to collaborate in the near future. Hint, hint. Ooh, what could you be talking about? I don't know. We'll talk about it at the appropriate time. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Lauren. Thanks again to Dylan. Thanks again to Jelani and Travis, who worked to turn this thing around quickly. We don't often do a lot of quick turn news here, but I love that we can do that. So thanks, guys. Love it. Who else do I love? I love advertisers. You know why? Well, you know why we love advertisers. We always love advertisers because they bring this show to you for free. And I love each and every one of you who listen to this podcast and tell your friends about it. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon.